Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, or whatever time you happen to hear this. Dr. Simon here, and my show is The Stories We Live By. And I want to talk about a sad story today, um, one that affected me very much. And that was finding out uh, that uh, Robin Williams, one of my favorite actors and comedians, had committed suicide. And my first reaction was really quite the same as almost everybody uh, I spoke with. Um, Kind of a shock. Uh, How could somebody so funny, who had so much, who was so wealthy, so talented, and so loved, how could he end his life? And I didn't know Robin Williams, so I can only conjecture why he ended his life uh, from what I know about his history, which is not a lot. It's what's made public. But also, over the 50 years I've worked with people, who some of whom were very, very depressed, very profoundly depressed, uh, from their histories. Um, and there was certain things that were common in these histories, um, what I want to do first is to discuss the the, the uh, constant uh, media uh, statements that he longed, he was a long time sufferer of depression, and the medicine medical profession, the mental health industry, weighing in that uh, depression, uh, if left untreated, is a uh, dread illness, a serious illness. And one of its symptoms uh, is suicide. Um, After I discuss my own view of what I think depression is, a person who's experiencing what we call depression, um, I'll suggest that labeling somebody um, with being depressed really hurts rather than helps. And uh, while drugs provided by the uh, big pharma through psychiatry, and now psychologists um, are used to, quote, treat the depression. Uh, They don't work very well for a majority of individuals. If you watch now, uh, there are now drugs operating, being advertised on television uh, that uh, are added to the uh, antidepressant drugs. Because only, as the ads will say this, 70% of those uh, who uh, take these drugs are not really helped. Um, But to say that uh, it's a disease that causes the sadness, that causes the alienation, the hopelessness, the helplessness, um, the uh, sleeping or the not sleeping, is is to deny the phenomenological, the existential, the experience of being depressed. And it really prevents a deeper understanding of why an individual can um, get caught up in this depression for long periods of time and find out that the only way to get out of that state of mind is to end their life. So 
what did I learn from my years of working with really depressed people? There were certain uh, psychological truths that they lived with that were the basic constructs of the story they lived in. And as long as these truths remain truths and define their view of themselves in the world, they were stuck. And I think this is an important concept. Uh, over the last few years of my theorizing, uh, I sort of forgot about this one. Um, I came up with what I call the emotion of stuckness. People will say, I feel stuck. Uh, and and I, I don't know anybody, and this includes me, who didn't feel stuck at one point or another in some kind of situation. And most often I defined it as a situation, stuck in a job, stuck in, in um, stuck when I was trying to write a book, stuck that I couldn't uh, work through a paragraph or a page or a chapter. I was stuck, and it's a very uncomfortable feeling to experience stuckness. Um, on the other hand, my being stuck while trying to write a chapter or stuck in a job that uh, I might feel dead-end, dead-ended, um, rarely leads to extreme behaviors to get unstuck. So I want to talk about the phenomenological, the experiential, the things that people, the language that they actually use. Um, not necessarily even where they, these conclusions about life and the world come from. Uh, sometimes I knew it and sometimes it made sense and sometimes it didn't. The first uh, hallmark, the first pillar, the first uh, structural aspect of a story in which you can be stuck and not be able to find a way out of is the belief that in some way you are defective, morally defective. How many really depressed people would tell me they hate themselves or even more, they loathe themselves? I wish I had never been born. I wish I could die now. I wish a hole would come and swallow me up. I don't deserve to live. Sometimes uh, they would uh, put a, a kind of a, a, um, uh, a, lab a further label on it. I'm too ugly to be alive. I'm too stupid to be alive. Um, one of my patients that I work with for many years, about 15 years, who was diagnosed uh, who was alternately depressed and diagnosed as psychotic and schizophrenic, uh, would say, I'm the worst person that's ever lived. Something I've heard about from patients uh, over and over. A gentleman I'm working now with now in the nursing home uh, who uh, tells me he is the worst person that ever lived. Now, I've heard this so many times. And I would suggest to them, worse than Hitler? Worse than, than, than the worst dictator that's ever lived? Yes. Well, what did you do in your life that made you worse than Hitler? What did you do that you would loathe yourself, uh, that you were more extreme in your being evil, destructive than Hitler? And they couldn't come up with anything. Sometimes they came up with stuff that uh, could be laughed at. I smoked pot. I had sex before marriage. I lied to my parents. 
these transgressions, most of us recognize as transgressions, um, particularly if we're kids, but most of us somehow find a way to get unstuck from the guilt, find forgiveness, uh, not loathe ourselves to the degree that we believe they're worse than a Hitler. But this kind of self-loathing, living with a sense of deep shame, guilt, uh, is everything I've discovered as a, one of the hallmarks, the experiential hallmarks of an individual who gets diagnosed by, as a depressive, or we'll use the word because now it's become part of the lexicon, it's part of the language you use, I'm depressed. Uh, some of these individuals I've worked with were too depressed to say they were depressed. It was that they just were beaten down and now stuck and trapped within this unshakable belief in their being defective, not worthy, not worthy of love, not worthy of friendship. Um, Groucho Marx used to have a really interesting joke. I thought it was Woody Allen, but it, somebody convinced me it was Groucho Marx. I would never have a, be a friend to anybody who would be a friend to me. I would never join a club that would have me. Um, that was a joke, but like so many comic jokes, uh, there's a piece of truth that sits under it, particularly for the person who uses the joke. And I'll get to a moment for, in a moment about um, um, uh, uh, Williams' uh, uh, his comedy his frantic use of comedy. The second pillar, if you will, the second belief that a person has difficulty getting unstuck with and uh, traps them in their, in their story in a, with unbearable pain. I, I should say that from the beginning. The pain, the emotional pain of believing that you are the worst person in the world, that you are morally defective, that you have no value, you have no worth, uh, that you are nothing but shameful and guilt-ridden, um, is, is uh, unbearable. As I've said in my, many of my recent shows, we have to believe that we have moral value and moral worth, which is why we go to so much trouble to justify the things that we do. And, and I really fight so hard against being told we're defective, particularly in some uh, uh, <clears throat> important role in our life. So number two is <clears throat> the world is toxic. <clears throat> there is nothing in the world but horror. And I tend to be a viewer of the world uh, uh, called pessimistic when I talk about that, that there is much ugliness that human beings, I'm a kind of Freudian when I state that Freud believed that uh, the best of us are no damn good. Freud had a very bleak view of the human race. Uh, I do too. But I don't believe that that ugliness exists in most individuals. That when I deal with an individual and the politics and the anger of, of their, their sense of injustice, entitlement, uh, is not there, um, they're quite pleasant, quite decent. Um, and there are many beautiful people in the world. 
uh, if you can't, we can't see the beauty in children, um, as well as, by the way, the ugliness in children. I mean, uh, uh, watch a child being bullied at the age of six or seven by a group of children, and you realize the potential uh, difficulty, the potential harm uh, that human beings can inflict on one another is already present very early in life. But there is beauty. There is much beauty in the world. And something terrible happens when we get trapped in a view that there is no beauty, there is no love, there is nothing uh, but duplicity, there is nothing but harm, there is nothing but hurt. Uh, and many of the individuals, again, I don't know Robin's background, uh, but many of the individuals uh, were convinced that there was no beauty and that they were defective by parents who hated them and loathed them and didn't want them. Now, we all say, well, all parents love their children. Not so, not so. Uh, childhood can be a brutal time. And when I started working with children, and I started working with patients almost 50 years ago, uh, at first I was shocked by the stories I would hear. Children who were beaten regularly. Um, children who were tortured. Children who were told things like, and these are some of my favorites, um, you were the abortion that failed. You ruined your father and my marriage, or your mother and our marriage. Uh, why were you born? You can do nothing right. You disgust me. Another one of my favorites, her, uh, by a depressed patient. I shit you out. You are nothing but shit. These were things that were said and backed up very often with severe punishments, um, and rejections um, um, that became fixed in the mind of the individual. They were truths. And anybody who's worked with somebody or lived with somebody who's really depressed, you can say there's beauty in the world. You're a good person. I love you. It's like water that goes off a duck's back. It simply, simply is rejected because the fixed truth is fixed and even though it's fixed it's unbearable and therefore requires some kind of escape fear of the world loathing of the world um i recently i don't remember the title of it uh, a woody allen movie that uh, was uh, starred larry david where he's an old man an older man who's committed tried to commit suicide several times and all he could see is the brutality and the ugliness in the world um, yes, the Holocaust happened. Yes, uh, horrendous things happen all over the world and are happening now. Yes, human beings are capable of the most utmost brutality and, and bestiality and lack mercy. Uh, and the other side, there are people who uh, provide kindness, risk their lives to help others. Um, they sit side by side. Why one goes one way and why another goes another way? We can say background, we can say culture, we can, we can come up with all kinds of explanations. But that's something that really, really works as an explanation. And by the way, uh, I've had patients, I've worked with people, I've met people 
who were treated with the same brutality as somebody else who's depressed and found a way to escape. And I'll talk about what I consider a good escape from those backgrounds, from being stuck in such a a story, uh, in which the story is transformed and changed into something positive and loving and creative. Why one person can't and another person can is a mystery. It really is a mystery to me. Uh, I don't know enough. And even after 50 years of working with people and reading and thinking about this, I still don't fully understand why one person, I don't even partially understand why one person walks in one direction and one person restructures the story that they live by in a totally opposite and different direction. Next, the next pillar, which comes out of the mouth of somebody uh, who is judged to be very depressed by themselves or others, and that is, Nothing will ever change. The notion that their suffering, that their, uh, their, their badness, that their defect, that the world is a toxic, empty place of no nurturance, no love, no beauty, uh, this nothing can change. Nothing will change. It's permanent. It's forever. I'll never feel better. I'll never get out of the hole I'm in. I was this way all my life, and I will stay this way till I die. And the fourth is I can do nothing about any of it. This produces profound sense of helplessness, hopelessness, and the individual hating themselves and the world, fearing the world, Loathing themselves feels it's a fixed problem that they and nor anybody else can do anything to help them. I'm beyond help. And I would hear this all the time. Now, when we are caught in a situation of unbearable psychological pain, and in some ways it's really uh, more difficult than unbearable physical pain, although unbearable physical pain... Uh, uh, is more easily handled by medicine, by real medicine, although this is a side issue that I'm not going to get into. We're so afraid of people who are even dying, uh, becoming addicted with drugs that we don't provide them with adequate amounts of pain relief uh, that exists where the brain can be cut off from that pain. Um, But this is pain about the self. This is pain about the world. This is pain that is unbearable and must be uh, uh, escaped from. There must be a a sense of being unstuck. Um, And so people become desperate about unsticking themselves. And what are some of the ways uh, that they do this? Well, drugs, alcohol, uh, have been with us from the beginning of time. Some people use drugs recreationally. Uh, some people drink a drink or two before dinner, uh, and and only when it's appropriate, socially or when they're going to drive a car. Others climb into the bottle and live in the bottle. They live in an alcoholic haze. Why? Because they're numb to the inner pain 
that has become unbearable by living in a story that can't be lived in, that is unbearable to live in, and yet they find no other escape. Alcohol and drugs. Um, this usually doesn't work very long, for the long, because uh, the side effects of alcohol and drugs uh, usually bring about more unbearable pain, uh, bring about behaviors that uh, increasingly become destructive to the self and others, and therefore increase the sense of being morally defective and a waste and a wastrel uh, and damaged goods uh, that doesn't deserve friendship or love or kindness or a any other uh, a soothing balm at the hand of another human being who could care for them. Sex. Um, throwing oneself into sex. For many, there is a release in sex. For most of us, there's a release. For some of us, the release is joyful. But for others, it's merely a short-term release. Uh, and and uh, very often this leads to, again, the, the, the silly word addiction. An individual who constantly sees, seeks sex, who seeks desperately seeks affirmation from others about how good they are at something or how good they are at sex. Um, there's a great joke about a guy who goes into a bar and he sees an attractive woman and he strikes up a conversation and for the next hour he talks about himself, how great he is, how wonderful he is. Deep down he doesn't believe this. Right? doesn't give her a chance to say anything. She now feels stuck and tries to think, how to get away from this guy. And finally after an hour he says, uh, you know, I've talked about myself enough. Now you talk about me. Um, this is mostly when we see it wounded narcissism. And that wound, very often, is escaped or salved over or bandaged over uh, by uh, some throwing oneself into uh, social situations, dominating them, uh, trying to entertain people. Um, I don't know many people in entertainment, but I've always been fascinated by the behavior of individuals who are entertainers. How wonderful they are on the screen or on the stage when they're singing, when they're dancing. And then we discover that their lives are a wreck behind the scenes. How many marriages, how many broken relationships? Um, I, I, I never forgot the moment when Sally Fields, who I think was a fabulous, is a fabulous actress, um, the last thing I saw her was in um, uh, it was Abraham Lincoln's wife in the movie Abraham Lincoln, which I felt I should get three credits for watching. Uh, I didn't think it would ever end. But anyway, um, uh, Sally Fields, who after she got her second Oscar, I forget the films. It really doesn't matter. One was Norma Ray, and I forget the other one. And she looked at the audience and she said into the camera and the audience, you love me, you really love me. And I thought, I don't love you. I'm enthralled by you as an actress. You entertain me. I could say I love you, but it's not the love I have for my wife, my children, my friends. It's not that kind of a love. I don't know you. And there she is passionately, passionately stating 
how uh, millions of people who don't know her love her, really love her. You really love me. Uh, as long as somebody uh, can entertain and be loved that way and feel it, they're not going to commit suicide. Okay? They're not. And if the story is really dark underneath, it can be an escape that works over and over. Now, what happens, though, when they no more entertaining? What happens when they sit in their own room, in their own skin? And with Robin Williams, we had a sense. Uh, when I used to watch him as a comedian, and I loved him. I, mean, I laughed and laughed and laughed. Again, I say I love him, but I didn't know him. Uh, I love him in a way that I say I love my car. My car was just detailed. My 11-year-old car looks brand new. And I said to somebody, boy, I love that car. Uh, I don't love my car. I like my car. I, I, I'm dependent on my car. I want to keep my car. But it's not love as I understand a real love of my heart to another heart. Um, he was frantic. He was manic. In his and please, please don't immediately. Oh, he was bipolar uh, because mania, I believe, is something people can throw themselves into to escape from the bleak, dark feeling of helplessness, hopelessness, self-loathing, and fear of the world. Religion, I think, one of the main functions of religion is to help us get unstuck from the ugliness in life, from the pain. For most of us, or people I know who are religious, religion tempers. It's, it tempers the pain, uh, but they find real pleasure in their religion. It's not merely escape. The people who seem to escape from dark stories into religion become very often ultra-Orthodox. They become fanatical in their religion. Um, these are the individuals who I believe become enraged if you question their religious belief and become dangerous. How dare you question our belief? Because it's really all they have to get unstuck from the misery of their lives. Uh, I was reading an article in the Times this week about the young men who... Uh, uh, are enlisted in ISIS or these other terrorist organizations. And it said two things were missing from their life. Uh, one was holding a girl's hand. And two uh, was um, uh, the, the uh, education that opens the mind to the possibilities about the world in a larger sense. And I've said this so many times on my past shows, when I'm working with individuals who I call patients or clients, and uh, I never quite know what to call people like that, but uh, the people I work with is usually, usually how I write about it, the people I work with, um, uh, to get them to go back to school, uh, to get a larger sense of the world, other than the small, narrow sense that they were given in poverty, uh, in a culture that uh, demeans women, uh, last couple of shows I've done, and I, I, I feel so strongly about this, uh, that we as a species they are never going to redeem ourselves and move on to something uh, better until uh, women uh, are treated with the same respect, uh, with the same opportunities, uh, with the same fairness that we believe men should be uh, treated. 
Uh, and finally, suicide. I can't bear myself. I can't bear my life. Uh, I'm doing it in. Of course, we have the famous uh, soliloquy by Hamlet, to be or not to be, in which he says, gee, I can't stand myself, I can't stand life, I can't stand the world, but if I take a, a, a botkin, a knife, and I kill myself, what might I dream about afterwards? Um, and, and many people are kept from suicide by the religious belief if that, that's part of their life story, uh, part of their uh, uh, sacred story, uh, the unchanging belief that there is an afterlife in which they will be in much worse trouble if they commit suicide than if they uh, stay and, and, and with, with, with the misery uh, that they now have. So that's my, that's my, my story. Uh, I believe that, uh, and I can't prove this, but I'm going to conjecture that deep down, Robin Williams, who uh, was desperate with his comedy, who was desperate with drugs, who was desperate with alcohol, uh, who was desperate to be loved uh, by people he didn't know, who didn't know him, um, desperate to escape from a story that contained the elements of somehow self-hatred, fear of the world, uh, a fear that the world really, in a way, uh, will betray you, that there is no real goodness and real love, uh, a sense of helplessness about his condition, and a sense of despair and hopelessness about his condition as well. Well, here I am. Uh, nobody's calling in. You can call in to 646-716-7756. And somebody contacted me uh, by email and said they listened to my show, so maybe they're there and they want to go on. Um, so I'm going to sit for a couple of seconds. I have a nice ice cream sandwich waiting for my dessert. I really shouldn't because over these holidays, I ate like a pig and got my stomach upset. I should really go back to my Weight Watchers in a strict way, but I just don't feel like it at this moment. So I think I'll have my ice cream sandwich. Okay, I hope this was helpful. Um, how do you find... Well, I really should have added... Gee, I'm leaving it this way. Um, how do you get out of this? Well, most people really do get out of these stories to some degree. Um, I, I'm a great believer in psychotherapy putting therapy in quotes because I'm not treating a medical condition. I'm trying to non-coercively change a person's mind by having them experience a relationship that is non-coercive, non-judgmental. Um, I think this is critical to get them to open their mind to the possibility uh, that uh, kindness exists that if they go back to school, if they read, if they write, uh, if they say and tell the story of their life and it's heard without judgment, without uh, punishment, um, that uh, this story can be changed, uh, sometimes profoundly. I do believe that changing any one element in the story, uh, if, a create, if there's a sense of hope, 
depression it feels very different than if it's hopelessness. Uh, if there's one view that something in the world is beautiful, that there's somebody out there capable of kindness and goodness uh, and recognizing that the suffering individual matters and is important, um, uh, that, that there's a transformation in the story uh, and then the emotional suffering, uh, if not totally relieved, becomes seriously relieved. Uh, some of the individuals I've worked with over the years have changed their story, which is why I was gratified to spend a life as both a teacher and as a teacher of individuals uh, uh, in what I called psychotherapy. Um, some I never did. Fortunately for me, I've never had a client, a patient, commit suicide. I've had any number of colleagues who have, and it's a profound problem for them to work, selves to work through, the guilt uh, and, and the feeling that what might I have done differently and what did I do, what did I say. Um, I could spend some time discussing, but I really uh, don't feel like it at this point, um, uh, parents who have a child commit suicide. Uh, the statistic is that 70 to 80 percent of marriages in which a child commits suicide uh, ends. Uh, it's very high if a child dies, but where a child commits suicide, uh, drug overdose, uh, something in which what we call pathology, some dark aspect of life, uh, while they were escaping from their, uh, from their pain, they killed themselves or took drugs and ruined their life uh, and went down a sinkhole of alcohol and other kinds of drugs, uh, unbearable pain for parents. Um, uh, serious, serious adjustment problem uh, for them to get on with their lives and their marriage and their relationships. On the other hand, sometimes uh, one or both of them see the marriage as the source of their strength and move closer to each other. It, it, it brings the marriage, it brings the relationship together. Uh, although the grief of that and the uh, wonder of why, why my child uh, would want to end their life when I and, and my husband or my wife uh, are their parent becomes a very painful, painful thing. Uh, I had a, uh, a chairman, a history department uh, many years ago. He's now passed. Very interesting man. But he made the eulogy, he was a rabbi, and he made the eulogy uh, at the funeral of one of his secretaries whose son died of an overdose. Uh, and he said the only time parents can bear with the grief of a, of a um, child's death if it's uh, in war, if they can perceive that that child died uh, to save them, save the country, um, it's given meaning and uplift to it. And he said uh, to her, your child died fighting a war against uh, his drug addiction. Um, I, I could really spend some time running around with that, uh, but it really helped her. And so, therefore, I would never disparage the statement. So, I think that's it. I think that uh, 36 minutes is enough. And uh, again, anybody who wants to contact me, 
You can send me a message uh, to my website here, to my, my site at Blog Talk Radio, or you could send a message to LarrySideDoc at gmail.com. And I love it when I hear from people. And uh, tell your friends if you like this. And uh, good night. <laughs>